Welcome to Destination Murder, the true crime podcast. Each week, the hosts, that's us, BFS Megan and Tegan, cover stories from a new part of the world. Get ready to combat your travel bug and feed your true crime obsession. Hello, Tegan. Hey, How's Megan. it going? It's going pretty good. Episode 10. I know. I can't believe we've been doing this for over two months now. That's wild. I know, it's crazy. The time has just flown by. I feel like we're professionals now. We really know. know how to start the podcast. We're still figuring out how to end it. That's fine, though. I yeah. Think, <laughs> I think our awkwardness is okay, though. Um, it's Christmas Eve Eve when you guys will be listening to this, so mm-hmm. hope you all have a great Christmas. I'm so excited for Christmas. It's like the one thing I'm able to look forward to this year. I'm not looking forward to Christmas. Why not? Because I'm not going to be with my family. Aw. Yeah. Mom, Dad, I miss you. (laughs) I hope you have a good Christmas. Yeah, it's unfortunate the holiday season with all the COVID restrictions and people not being able to visit families and having to do everything virtual. Yeah. Yeah, no, and it's been a while since I've seen my parents, too, so it definitely sucks. Before we get started, uh, a little reminder that our Christmas special is going out in two days, so keep on the lookout for that. You have until, like, I guess tonight on the 23rd to send us your stories, because as we're going to be recording it, you Mm -hmm. can email those to us, uh, dest.murder at gmail.com or dest.murder at gmail.com. Or DM us on Instagram mm-hmm. at Destination Murder Pod. And while you're at it, I, a great little Christmas gift to us would be rating, reviewing, and sharing this podcast with your friends and any other person that you think might like us. Uh, because we want to be in their ear holes, too. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> spread the joy of Destination Murder this holiday season. Exactly. And on that note, Tegan, I think you're first. Where are you taking me today? I am taking you to Belgium. Belgium. Okay, quick sidebar. I've been to Belgium. Yes. And like for a weekend and it was the worst trip I've ever had in my life because so I arrived in the Netherlands to visit my partner Mike on the Thursday and then on the Saturday morning we We're going to go to Belgium for two nights, so Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And on the Saturday morning, I started to feel a little bit sick. Like, you know when you get that feverish feeling? Yeah. And it's kind of like chills, but you just don't feel normal and you feel a little hot, but it's like, you're like, it's final push through. Yeah, a little clammy. Yeah, exactly. And then we woke up really early. We woke up at like 7 or 6.30 to catch the train from Amsterdam. So I thought it was just that. But on the way down, I started to feel quite feverish. So we had a layover in like a a connection in like Antwerp or something. So we checked to see if there were any um, because we neither of us had any type of like medication on us because I didn't think I'd be sick. So we checked the station for medication, couldn't find any. When we got to Bruges, we checked the station and they didn't have any medication or nowhere that sold medication. So we wandered around the first day and it was horrible. I started to feel so sick. That's so sad. Yeah. And um, 
this was like the first time we had gone away together as a couple. So it was kind of sad and I just couldn't do it anymore. So I said, okay, Mike, go please find like a pharmacy and get me something, uh, get me some sort of medication. And so I'm in our Airbnb. Mike goes to hunt out medication and he comes back and he's like, so there's a problem. All the pharmacies are closed on the weekends in Belgium and in Belgium, they're not legally allowed to sell any sort of over-the-counter medication anywhere except for a pharmacy. That should be illegal. What the hell? There wasn't even like a grocery store that he could pop into to buy ibuprofen or anything. So I spent the entire day just in bed asleep so sick, had such a high fever. I honestly probably should have gone to the hospital at that point, but I was like, no, it's fine. I'm, I'm just going to stick it out. And so Mike gets to explore the city all by himself. And then he comes back and he's like, here, drink this. And I was like, okay. So he pops a tablet in a glass of water and drinks it. And then I kind of like come to after a while, like it, it, the medicine has an effect. And I'm like, where did you get this medicine? He's like, oh, I was at a bar and I was talking to the waitress about how sick you are. And then she walks over to a guy sitting two tables down from me on the terrace and is like, and like says something and he gets and leaves. And then she comes over to me and says, this guy's a regular. He lives just around the corner. He's going to go to his house and get your girlfriend some medication. <laughs> so he did. And that's where Mike got the medication. And honestly, thank you to that man, because I don't think I would have been able to survive that weekend. It was so horrible. Oh, my God. That's crazy. So that was a little bit longer than I intended it to be. But it's just. Yeah, that's a cool story, though. It's a well, I mean, it kind of sucks, but it... It's a fun story to tell about your trip to Belgium. To Belgium, yeah, and I don't plan on ever going back. <laughs> uh, that's not going to fly for me because I plan on going there with you at some point in my life. <laughs> We're doing Europe, baby. Belgium is <laughs> on the list. <laughs> okay, so I'll start my story now that has absolutely nothing to do with me. Um so I'm doing the parachute murder. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I have a ton of sources this week. Um, and also the story is a little bit shorter because um, last episode was so long. Um, okay, so my sources are Murderpedia, Wikipedia, um, uh, Reuters.com article by Philip Blankenshop. A Huffington Post article by Robert Wheelard, um, a Global Post article by Paul Ames, Daily Mail, um, Associated Press article by Raf Kastret, um, a Telegraph uh, UK article by Bruno Waterfield, a BBC article, and a World Today news article. So lots of sources. Lots of sources. Lots of info. So let's jump on into it. So on November 18th, 2006, Else Van Dorn, who was 38 years old, uh, a married mother of two and a very experienced skydiver with roughly 2,300 jumps to her name, died when both her primary and her reserve parachutes failed to deploy. At 2,300 jumps, that's a lot, and I never plan on jumping out of a plane once, so... She is clearly someone who likes to skydive. 
Yep. Someone who likes the thrill of almost dying and yeah. then not. The dive was captured by video camera mounted on her helmet. She dropped from a height of 13,000 feet. Yeah. That's... Wow, that's a lot. That's that's a long way to know that you're... Going to die, yeah. So she landed in a garden, um, which I don't really know what that means. Like, if it was, like, some, like, house garden or if it was, like, actually, like, at the... Like a park. Um, I bet it was someone's backyard. So she landed in the garden in a town of Opoblik. Police later established that the cords to her parachute had been cut. So Else Van Dorn had led a double life. During the week, Else worked with her husband at their family jewelry store in Antwerp. But on weekends, she spent... Uh, at the Schwatberg Parachute Club to enjoy her passion for skydiving, but also to meet her longtime lover, fellow club men- member, Marcel Sommers. Ooh, Marcel. Yeah. Els had left, left out of the Cessna with Marcel and another skydiver, Els, whose nickname was Babs because they're both named Els, Klotzman. And I'm going to refer to Els Klotzman as Babs for the rest of the story, and Else Van Dorn as Else. So they jumped out of the plane to perform an aerial maneuver during the fall. The three had taken off from a small aerodrome of Schwarzburg on their regular Sunday skydiving trip. So the two women had share, shared the same first name and were close friends. They both had a passion for skydiving, and they both loved the same man. Marcel. Ooh. The three became friends in 2004, but unknown to Els, Marcel had also begun to have an affair with Babs. A week before the fatal jump, the three of them spent the night in Marcel's home in a Dutch city of Eindhoven. 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 I even, like, phonetically, like, spelt it out, but <laughs> didn't do a good job enough. <laughs> I'm sure um, anyone who speaks Dutch listening is going to be like, no, 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 it's actually pronounced this way. Yeah. <laughs> so you're fine either way. Um, so Else slept with Marcel in his bed and Babs was left to the sofa in the front room. Babs probably didn't like that. No, probably not. So um, their jump the next day was postponed from Saturday until Sunday because of the bad weather. And Else went home to her family and Babs stayed with Marcel. So the next weekend... Um, They were all able to go out skydiving together. Um, They took each other's hands in formation for free fall that they had rehearsed on the ground earlier. But unlike the other jumps, when the trio went to join into a star formation before splitting up to open their chutes at 4,000 feet, Babs hung back when leaving the aircraft. She then watched from above as her friend Else struggled to open both her main and reserve parachutes. The fall was captured on Elsa's head-mounted video camera and the footage of the jump showing her frantic efforts to open her main and reserve parachutes provided key evidence for the police. You could also hear her screaming the entire way down when she, oh, she figured so out. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, I, really I would not want to watch that. No. Um, detectives th- um, after found signs that both parachutes had been sabotaged. That is one of my worst fears, is skydiving and then the parachutes don't open. Yeah. Like, I just... I I don't have enough trust in rope 
and a piece of fabric to um, keep me alive. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Not for me. Um, After establishing that Elsa's cords had been cut, police arrested Babs in January 2007. Investigators... Investigators? Why do I think that that's not a word? (laughs) Am I saying that right? Tegan, do you speak English? No, I think I'm having a seizure. Investigators. (laughs) That sounds like a made-up word to me right now. (laughs) Okay, anyway, so the investigators piecing together the events leading up to the death believe Babs wrote anonymous letters and made anonymous calls to Else, laying out the details of the love triangle. Mr. Boyan said for the prosecution that Marcel had entertained Els most Saturdays while often seeing Babs on Fridays. So the dude really had a schedule. He's like, I see. And it probably works perfectly for him because they both have the same name, so he never gets them confused. Els, Els. Um, According to Marcel, quoted in the UK's independent newspaper, he had been trying to shake off Babs. Like, so and you we, still invited her everywhere you went? Yeah. Okay. Um, so the case was entirely circumstantial. Babs became a suspect when she attempted suicide just before she was going in to give a second statement to the police a month after oh, the wow. incident. Yeah. We got crazy. Um, the prosecutors alleged that Babs had the opportunity to sab Elsa's parachute the week before the fatal jump when Babs, Elsa, and so, uh, Marcel all spent the weekend at his place. According to the allegations, Babs would have had the opportunity to cut Elsa's parachute cables as the parachute was in the apartment just down the hallway um, from her, and it would have taken no more than 30 seconds to cut the cables with scissors. So investigators were not able to determine if Els knew that Marcel's also had a relationship with Babs. For her part, Babs told the Belgian media in 2007, and this is kind of sad. It, like, hurts my heart a little bit, but also don't kill someone. She murdered someone? Yeah. So she told the Belgian media that she always knew that she was number two for Marcel and that Els was always number one. She never had a problem with this at the time as she had such a low image of herself that she couldn't even imagine being number two being number one yeah like she could only ever imagine being number two sorry that is very sad yeah that's what therapy is for (laughs) boost your self-confidence um what is it that lizzo says i mean who would want to hide this i will never ever ever be your side chick heck yeah heck yeah lizzo (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so sad but you could got help for that um anyways babs was released on bail in 2008 her trial began on september 24th 2010 and she sat nervously near the mud caked parachute bag and helmet that else wore on the day she died yeah they just had it like out on the court yeah (laughs) oh that's horrible the jury then saw the footage from a camera mounted on her helmet that Els had shot during her last jump. After the trial began, Babs, who maintained her innocence, was placed on suicide watch. So she's really just constantly trying to off herself. 
The interest in the trial was so large that the room next to the courthouse had to be used for journalists to follow up on the proceedings through remote video. Like, I feel like that's like Ted Bundy, kind of. Yeah, just an absolutely sensationalized case that reporters are just like trying to get, like ripping each other apart, trying to get into the courtroom. Yeah, well, I mean, Daily Mail covered it, so it's clearly... Oh, the Daily Mail. I hate them. Such (laughs) trash. But I used their information, so... Yeah, use it with a grain of salt, because they often are, like, super um, misogynistic and problematic. Yeah, Megan and I have at least one conversation a week about how much we hate Daily Mail. And I just want to know who this Demi girl is that is constantly on their Snapchat story. Demi from the Daily Mail. Yeah. Nobody knows who she is. I think that she's probably holding someone ransom and just saying that <laughs> they need to post her um, out on the beach every single day or she's going to do something. I think she's just like a model that the Daily Mail is literally obsessed with. Yeah. Or she's paid the Daily Mail to be her like paparazzi or something. Yeah, maybe. She was trying to pull a Kim. Babs showed no sign of emotion as prosecutor Patrick Boyan read the 68-page indictment. She only spoke to confirm basic details such as her date of birth and the profession and profession while her lawyers issued a statement expressing their firm belief that their client had not killed a woman she regarded as a friend. 68 pages? That's a lot. Like, I don't think that I would be able to sit <laughs> through that. So Bab's lawyers argued that there was no forensic evidence leaking, linking their client to the killing, and Babs had pointed a finger at Marcel or Elle's husband, Jan de Wilde. That's what I was thinking. Like, was there any evidence that proved she was the one? Because it seems like Marcel had the same access to Elsa's parachute. Um, he did, but, um, she, else was with Marcel the entire time where, um. So there would have been no opportunity. Oh, okay. Yeah. She was the only one, um, alone with the parachute. Okay. And I don't really know why Marcel would kill else. Like if anyone, I feel like he would have killed Babs because he was trying to shake her off. So detectives claimed in 2005 that Babs sent anonymous letters to Elsa's husband, bombarded Marcel with anonymous phone calls, and once tried to kill herself. So I think a little bit of her mental instability is also why they um, blamed her. Um, Marcel also told the court that Elsa was the love of his life and he bitterly regretted becoming involved with Babs. So just another blow to her self-esteem. Yeah. Um, Jan said he learned about his wife's affair only after her death and therefore had no motive of killing her. The Belgian court psychiatrists have declared Babs to be a danger to society and to be a psychopath with dramatic features. Oh, wow. She's got a flair for the dramatics. Well, yeah, cutting someone's parachute is super dramatic. And then watching it. like she was Yeah, like, watching her struggle. She was above her when they they fell because she didn't go into the formation with them the 12 members of the jury in the eastern belgian city of uh tongaren 
um, which when I looked up how to pronounce that is the oldest city in Belgium, which mm. I thought was neat. Um, it took four hours to find her guilty of premeditated murder. The jury said Babs acted with premeditation and that as she is an accomplished jumper, she knew how to disable the parachute. Evidence at the trial showed that she anonymously sent letters to about Elle's love life to mutual friends and that she was psychologically unstable. Babs faced a maximum penalty of life in prison. So... On October 21st, 2010, Babs was sentenced to 30 years imprisonment. In sentencing her to 30 years rather than to life, the judge took her feeble psychological condition as an extenuating circumstance. Like, everyone, I I kind of feel bad for Babs because they're just constantly just like, I never wanted to be with you, you're psychologically incompetent you have a feeble psychological condition like everyone's just kicking her (laughs) while she's kicking her when she's down yeah babs had appealed on the grounds that investigator investigators why is that word not a word to me um questioned her for more than a hundred hours without a lawyer present whoa yeah is that legal or do they just have to wait till she asks for a lawyer i don't know but the appeal mm-hmm. was denied in 2011. So I'm guessing it wasn't that big of a concern. But I guess if she didn't ask for a lawyer. Yeah. But that's like the... You should just know that immediately. Yeah. Obviously, she's never watched any true crime documentaries and known that as soon as you're in jail, lawyer up. Don't speak even if you're no, if you even if you know you're not guilty but you're like arrested or you're questioned for something lawyer up yeah police lie to convict innocent people yeah it's been done get a lawyer and if you're told something so multiple times it can become the truth like our brains are screwed up where if like someone tells you that you did something a whole bunch of times you're going to be like oh did my brain just not remember that properly. I must have done it. Mm-hmm. All I can think of right now is um, my sister got in trouble with our principal because apparently she had been scratching people's names into the paint in the bathroom at our elementary school. And she was just like interrogated for hours on end. She was like, I didn't do it. And then she finally was just like, I did it because she was like, eight (laughs) and she was like i don't know what to do um i still believe that she did it but she still did it yeah um she stuck to her guns for a long time yeah she's still she still is holding holding that she she never did that but did she ask for a lawyer though no Mm. rookie mistake sarah (laughs) get it together (laughs) eight-year-old sarah (laughs) (laughs) So on October 6th of this year, 2020, mm. Babs was eligible for parole because she had served over one third of her sentence. Her lawyer asked the Ghent Criminal Enforcement Court to grant her client limited detention. In addition, Babs would also be allowed leave 
from the Ghent prison during the day. She also submitted an application in 2019. According to her lawyer, she wanted to follow a VDAB training, which I was going to look up, but I forgot, so I don't know what that is. In the evening, Good research, Tegan. Thank you. Um, in the evening, she would return to the prison to spend her nights there. So she basically just wanted, like, the prison to basically be her home. Like, she'd go out during the day and then come back to her prison in the evening and go to bed there. Strange. Um, it sounds like the a working prison from yeah. the last episode. Like, the guy, in my case, got moved to a prison yeah. where he it was, like, really relaxed and he could, like, go to a job and then come back to the prison. Yeah. Like, that's... A, that's not jail. That's free house and board. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like it's a good midpoint, though, yeah. to get prisoners who are due to be released back into the workforce and kind of so you can monitor them a little bit. Yeah, because so many times people are released and then just book it and don't come back to their parole officer or whatever and yeah. they commit more crimes. That's true. I feel like it's not that's not prison, though. Like, I feel like there should be like a different term for that where like you're being moved to like somewhere like a else criminal rehabilitation center yeah because i think that rehabilitation is important especially um for like minor offenses mm-hmm. and for like drug possession and stuff yeah um, for people who were disadvantaged in life is a so that led them down a road where they had kind of no choice yeah they made or they made one poor decision and it just kind of mm-hmm. spiraled from there. But like, if you're raping or murdering people, you should not be allowed out of jail. So um, Else Van Dorn's widower and children have always opposed a release. After all these years, the relatives still do not know whether she's confessed to the murder or not. The family was therefore present at the hearing and... Um, and Bab's attitude had not changed all these years in prison. She still denies that she had anything to do with mm-hmm. Elsa's death. The Ghent sentencing court still thinks it's too early to release her, and they did not um, approve her parole hearing. If she's not, if she's not like fessing up to it, there's no way she can be rehabilitated for it. Yeah, and I think that like. Usually when you're going to, like, a parole hearing, like, the number one thing that they want is for you to, like, own what you did. Mm -hmm. You can't just continue to be like, it wasn't me. That is the story of uh, Else Van Dorn, Marcel Somers, and Else Babs Klutzman. What a horrible, horrible way to die. Yeah. I would not. Because you're at 13,000 feet and... You pull your parachute and for, you know, the remaining 8,000 feet or whatever, 10,000 feet, you know you're going to die. Yeah. It's, like, absolutely wild. I hope she blacked out or something. Well, I don't think she did because of, because of the video. Oh, the my video, goodness. you could just see her relentlessly trying to figure mm-hmm. out something. Because she released her first parachute and then the reserve, like the backup, and the backup also didn't mm-hmm. work as well. So, yeah, it's a long, long time to fall and think about your <laughs> your yeah. life. And, of course, Marcel's parachute had already been released, so he can't, like, fly over to save her. Yeah. Because he's falling slowly and he can't help yeah. her. Oh, that's so... 
That so must have been horrible. so sad to watch. Yeah. From his point of view. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Crazy. But yeah, and that's why I will never be going parachuting. Yep. Our friend Kat likes parachuting. She's been. Really? Yeah, she's been once. She wants to go again. I will never go with her. Oh, I was just going to say that I w- I'm down to go bungee jumping, but like I can't have time to think about it. Like Yeah. I I will do it. But it can't be like, let's sit around and think about it for the rest of the day. I need someone to book it for me, to put me on the bus, and just take me to the thing. And I need someone to, like, jump with me because I will... (laughs) Or someone has to push me off because (laughs) I will not jump. But, yeah, it looks cool. I just want to be like Hannah B on The Bachelorette where her and her date bungee jumped out of a gondola naked because apparently that's something that you do in like the bachelor um, no like um i can't remember where they were i think they were in serbia they were somewhere in in eastern europe and apparently a tradition there is that you bungee jump like tandem bungee jump with your partner naked and it's supposed to be like this thing where like you're like Basically. You get closer and you bond. Yeah, you bond. This <laughs> is so odd. Yeah, like you're like in your most vulnerable state together, I guess. As you plummet over, thinking you're going to die. Yeah, a river. <laughs> Wild. Okay. Should I just get on in? You should just get on in. Today, I am taking you to India for my case. But before we cover the murder, I would like to talk about and highlight the massive protests in India that have been happening for the past couple months. Tegan, I'm sure you've seen this because I have seen it all over social media and in the news as well. And they are protesting. uh, The farmers in India are protesting. So over 60% of the Indian population relies on the agricultural sector for a living. A majority of these are small-scale farming operations. There is an intense rural-urban poverty divide in India, with those in rural and agricultural areas often suffering the most from wealth disparity. In 2018 and 2019, the average Indian farmer earned only 140 U.S. dollars per month. Holy. Wait, again, say that again. I don't think that, like, fully sunk in. In 2018 to 19, the average Indian farmer earned only $140 US dollars per month. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. Farmers in India also suffer one of the country's highest suicide rates, second only to that of housewives. 11% of total suicides in India are of those involved in the agricultural sector and often occur due to economic hardships suffered by this group. During the COVID-19 pandemic, these hardships have heightened as Indian farmers struggle to cope with economic impacts of government lockdowns. On September 20th, 2020, the government of India passed three farming reform bills. These new acts, in simple terms, have essentially privatized and deregulated the agricultural industry in India. They prevent state governments from setting market fees, construct a legal framework for prearranged contracts between farmers and corporations, and remove a large list of items from being classified as essential commodities. 
Previously, farmers would sell their crops at markets and were guaranteed the minimum support price for goods. But the introduction of contract farming takes this guarantee away. That's crazy. Yeah. The government claims these empower farmers and give them more freedom. However, farmers feel like the new laws will allow them to be exploited and taken advantage of by corporations. Uh, The Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, who is criticized as being a very autocratic leader, claims that these laws allow farmers to set their own prices and sell directly to buyers, but farmers fear it gives all of the power to wealthy corporations when agricultural workers are, in many cases, already on the poverty line. Yeah, because they can, the the big corporations can sell it at a lower price, and so no mm-hmm. one's going to want to buy, buy from the smaller communities. Mm-hmm. Moreover, these laws take away the farmer's right to settle potential disputes or unfair working conditions created by their contracted corporations in the courts. So I believe the new laws say that farmers can't go to court against the corporations. They have to settle it with a government representative in their region. That's why Mm -hmm. that's going backwards. Yeah, (laughs) that's what a lot of the farmers think as well. Protests have occurred in states across India since the legislation passed in September, but this has not been enough to see results. At the beginning of December, farmers decided it was time to march to Delhi, the capital of the Indian capital, to further protest against the new legislation. Protesters from the states of Punjab, Haryana, and Uttar Pradesh marched to Delhi in their trucks and tractors, shutting down roads and blocking traffic. In some cases, protesters traveled over 400 kilometers to protest. And this is what we saw happen um, across the world as well. I was watching videos. There's protests in like the U.S. and the U.K. and Canada as well. I know protesters blocked traffic downtown Vancouver a couple of weeks ago. And they did that because that's what was happening in India. The, tra- the farmers were blocking traffic with their tractors. This is currently the largest protest in human history, with over 250 million people participating worldwide. Holy, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, like we saw in the U.S. back in June at the Black Lives Matter protests, peaceful protesters have been met with police violence. At least five people have been killed by police in Delhi since the protests began, with officers blasting protesters with water cannons during the coldest months of the year, pepper spray and tear gas, and beating protesters with batons. Many of these protesting are senior citizens, and the Indian government has denounced the protests as being anti-Indian. That's so sad. Mm -hmm. The government has set up talks to come to a deal with the farmers, but none have resulted in any agreement. The farmers are demanding the laws be repealed, but the government refuses. So... That's where we're at now as of Saturday, December 19th, 2020, and I expect this will continue to unfold throughout the next couple of weeks. So I will link all of my sources for that and some resources and organizations in our show notes for this episode, which you can find by just clicking the link in our episode description. What happens with these farming laws will have ripple effects worldwide because India is the main exporter of spices and the world relies on India for many other agricultural products. But of course, the most severe impacts will be felt by the farmers themselves. And I really don't think anyone wants to see already poor farmers being further exploited by wealthy corporations. No. In Canada and the U.S., we have like 
market pricing for goods and the government subsidize, subsidizes a ton of stuff. Like the milk industry, they I didn't know this, but they're at their lowest um, like sales, uh, like record lows of all time. And they're producing too much milk. And the only way to save that is to make it into cheese because that's the only way that it won't go bad. So there's like sellers upon sellers of government owned cheese because they're just making too much. Mm-hmm. Um, if I had access to that, then maybe there wouldn't be such an issue. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, you know, I think my family, solely my family, could support the entire Canadian dairy industry because we drink so much milk. We drink like two four-liter jugs of milk every week, plus almond milk, plus oat milk. That's ridiculous. The yeah, there's only- seven of us. I guess that's true. Um the only dairy products that I have is cheese. I drink oat milk. Um, but yeah, it's crazy. I think the world is taking a huge change in like what people want and um, dairy is not sustainable for our environment or for the economy. Um, I sidetracked that off of something very important, but I think that it's like if what my point was, if I think if, you know, first world countries like Canada and the U.S. governments are able to subsidize their farmers to make sure that they can make a profit because farmers are really the backbone of the country. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> humans can't survive without food and lots of us don't know how to grow our own food and sustain ourselves. Yeah. So. I often think, like, if there were to be a zombie apocalypse and I had to grow my own food, I would literally die. Yeah. I don't know how to do anything myself. Literally. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I was reading, um, I think you were, you were reading this too. I'm not sure if you finished. Homo sapiens by, um, mm-hmm. no, I can't. I haven't finished it yet. Yuval something. I can't remember his name. I'm so sorry. Um, but he, in his book, he says that we're the most advanced of where we are at um, today um, as, like, humans, but we're also the least advanced individually because mm-hmm. back when we had to be foragers and hunters, we had to be able to um, get our own food, grow our own food, hunt, um, you know, build communities, like, build our own housing, be able to create transportation and all that kind of stuff. But today, we're all very advanced in very small things. So there's, like, very specific categories of what we're advanced at. So as a Mm -hmm. society, as a whole, we're more advanced. But um, as individuals, we're we're at our least competence for survival. And like you said, farmers are really the backbone of all of that advancement. Yeah. Because without them... Like everything would go haywire. No one, yeah. ev- no one would be able to eat, yeah. because farmers are the ones that are advanced at providing the rest of us food. Yeah. So we rely, like literally, the entire world relies on farmers. Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. And even the area where the farmers are protesting, like I think uh, Punjab, the state of Punjab in India is called the breadbasket of India. So like all of India relies on that region for food. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. I think that people um, kind of look down on that kind of work because they think that it's uh, 
medial, but like you can't have a, a functioning society without them. Alrighty, so uh, <laughs> are we gonna? Is your case related to this, or is it something different? It's something a little bit different. It is uh, located in northern India, in the state of Uttar Pradesh, and sort of Delhi. Um, so I got my sources from Murderpedia, RoadsandKingdoms.com article from 2017, BBC.com, and I think that was it. Sorry, oh. I thought <laughs> I thought there was another really? one. Really, one more? No. So a little disclaimer: many of the sources had contesting information, and I did a lot of other Google searches to see what was the correct story. But everything, like people in these stories, had different names. And so I've done my best to piece it all together accurate, accurately. And so just a disclaimer, if you know this case or you hear it somewhere else and some details are different, it's most likely because there's so much different contesting information out there. So I really tried hard to put it all together in the most accurately as possible, but keep that in mind. So for this week's case, I am taking you to the small village of Gurakapurva in India, and we'll be telling you about the bandit queen, Pulan Devi. Ooh, this sounds interesting. The bandit queen. Pulan Devi was born in August of 1963 in a small rural village near the Yamuna River in the northern state of Uttar Pradesh. Pulan was born into a lower caste family. So the caste system, if you're not familiar with it, in India is part of Hindu law, which designates the social structure of Hindu society. People are born into the, a group, a specific caste, and your caste cannot be changed. It's sort of like a pyramid, or more accurately, the figure of the Hindu god Brahma, with priests and intellectuals at the top, so at the head, and street, street sweepers and like latrine cleaners at the bottom, at the feet. So these groups are largely segregated, with villages having infrastructure for one caste or the other. So, for example, they would have separate drinking wells. And a lower caste is not allowed to get water from the upper caste drinking well, and the upper caste would not get water from the lower caste because they think it's, like, below them. Yeah. Isn't it illegal, but they still do it anyways? Mm -hmm. So the caste system allows the people at the top to thrive and, you know, be very privileged, but keeps the poorest of society poor and suffering with no chance to ever make more for themselves. While being largely recognized as unjust and, and made illegal in 1950, so like you said, the caste system was still prevalent in the more conservative rural areas in, of India in the latter half of the 20th century. So Pulan was part of the Mala caste or the fisherman caste. I believe the caste have social orders within the caste. Yeah. So the name of the caste wasn't Mala, but she was part of the the Mala like sect of that caste. Yeah. It was quite confusing to look up. I'm really not familiar with, but <laughs> everything had different names, like I yeah. said. So it was, it was very confusing. I'm going to sidetrack here for a second because... Uh, all I can think of right now is Slumdog Millionaire and wasn't like that. <laughs> the big thing was because the, the guy was super poor, but then he became a millionaire. So it was like yeah. this, like, well, the cast system, like, anyways, I don't really remember that movie very well, but I remember it being a huge hit. Yeah, he won the, like, India's uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and 
then he was pretty much tortured because they couldn't believe that someone from his his cast could be could be that intelligent yeah and win so yeah like when i looked into it mala was not a cast name but it seems to be a type of person within a lower cast pulan was a woman who didn't take any shit <laughs> she was rambunctious and a troublemaker a little girl who seemed like she did not want to be told what to do by men and society at age 11 her grandparents died and her uncle declares himself the head of the family he then stole all of the inheritance and forged land records to steal Pulan father's land. Pulan's oh, father's land. I don't like that man. Yeah, the uncle was not a nice guy. This uncle had a son, Mayadin, who cut down a large neem tree, which Pulan's father, um, the large neem tree was on Pulan's father's land, and Pulan's father had hoped to one day use the wood as dowry for his daughter's marriages because he had, uh, I believe, three or four daughters. This made Pulan very angry. She publicly humiliated her cousin Mayadin, calling him a thief and staging a sit-in on her uncle's land. And in return, he beat her with a brick until she was unconscious. Okay, whoa. Like, good on her also awful on him that's absolutely insane yeah she was like a strong like feminist how old was she girl 11 only 11 why on earth would you beat an 11 year old because she was you know disobeying the uncle and the cousin Mm, no not for me i like this little girl Mm -hmm. so after that whole ordeal the uncle decides that it's it's time for the 11 year old pulan to get married a way to rid himself of her he arranges her marriage and marries her off to a 45 year old man in a village uh, like over 100 kilometers away no and he trades her essentially for a cow and a bicycle no what year was this in the early 70s okay like 1974 maybe i was having a little panic attack that it was like uh, 2000s <laughs> no 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 no. it was a while ago um you see mm-hmm. i'm sorry i'm gonna sidetrack you again because i think that this is like really important but like whenever like i talk to people about feminism and stuff like i it's you're not being a feminist for yourself you're being a feminist for these little girls who get married away. I, we both have very privileged lives. We, we're white, straight women who were born in middle-class families, and we've, you know, we've had a good life. But there are people around the world who, ha- who don't have the same rights that we do, and they get taken advantage of, like, of that. No 11-year-old should be married to a 45-year-old man. No 11-year-old should be married, period. (laughs) True. (laughs) Yeah. That's, like, actually insane. That, yeah, that's basically, like, slavery. Mm Mm-hmm. She was basically sold as a slave at that point Mm -hmm. for a bike and a cow. Rude. Sorry. Continue. It's okay. That's a very good point. Yeah. People always say, why do you need feminism? Like, you live in Canada. Canada is, like, a lovely country. Women have rights. And it's like, well, I mean, 
We do, we don't, but... We do and we don't. But you need to use your voice for the people who don't have a voice or their Mm -hmm. voice isn't being heard. Yeah, exactly. So, of course, Poulan is not interested in being married to this creep of a man in a village hundreds of miles away from the rest of her family. And plus, in this marriage, she is raped and abused. So she runs away multiple times. And she comes home multiple times. I don't know how, but this 11-year-old travels a hundred of kilometers to get back to her home village, only to be returned to her husband again and again. After a year of this, her husband seems to have had enough with her, and he deems her an unfit. He deems her unfit for a wife and mother's duties, and sends her back to her family. This, of course, brought shame upon her family because at the time in rural India, if a wife left her husband, it was deeply shameful. She becomes a social outcast in her village, and it just age 12 Poulan's mother tells her to kill herself wow that's kind of rude for the next few years she hangs around hangs around home and tends her family's buffalo on their farm during these few years she develops a hatred for her cousin Mayadin and they clash a lot she takes him to court and sues him over stealing her father's land but she fails to win the land back this girl is like what 14 or 15 at this point good on her Mm. I know Uh, She also gains what is described uh, in my sources as a, quote, promiscuous reputation, unquote, within the village. But I honestly think this would just mean that she was interested in boys and would flirt with them. Yeah. Or the fact that she was married once and left her Mm -hmm. husband. And only a bad lady would do that. Don't mind that she was only 12 years old, married to a 45-year-old. Literally her dad. It could be her dad. Mm Mm-hmm. Could be her grandfather. I know. Ugh. In 1979, when Poulan was 16, Mayadin accuses her of stealing items from his house. He arranges for Poulan to be arrested. In jail, Poulan is beaten and raped by the police. To get back at Poulan for stealing, her cousin burns her father's crop. Okay, he already got back at her for arranging her to be arrested and her undergoing horrible abuse in jail. But then he also decides to burn down her father's crops. Poulan gets released from jail, and upon finding out that Mayadin has burned down her father's crops, she takes revenge on her cousin and beats him up with a rock. <laughs> I love that. But, like, Mayadin is, like, literally a, a psychopath. Why wasn't he charged for burning down the crop? I don't know. Because it's, you know, revenge. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. He not only won the court case, but he also got to take his revenge. Aren't they also in, like, the same caste system, too? So, yeah, like, it's not like he can really get away with it because he's of, like, higher caste. Like, what? Ugh, it's so annoying. Um, so this years-long family feud with her uncle and cousin ends with her uncle organizing a local gang of robbers and bandits called Dacoits in India to kidnap Pulan. At this time in India, the culture of dacoity, or gangs of bandits, maybe similar to the idea of like cartels or something, was many places throughout the country. These dacoity would patrol the roads demanding fees from users and would run the dense forests of north and central India. The dacoity would be gangs of men from all levels of castes, lower castes at low levels of leadership and high level caste men at the bosses. So Poulan was kidnapped by the Dacoit gang and taken away from her village. 
She was now in a dangerous situation with a gang of dangerous men and being vulnerable, only 16 or 17 years old. One night after her kidnapping, the gang's leader, Babu Gujar, attempts to rape Pulan. However, another gang man- member, I think the second, like the second man, yeah. Vikram Mala, a young gang member from the same cast as Pulan, intervenes to save Pulan and attacks Babu Gujar, shooting him in the head and killing him. This mm-hmm. is like um, Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> <laughs> so Vikram's name was not always the same in my sources, so I'll just stick with Vikram okay. for now. So Vikram then becomes the head of the gang, frees Pulan, and takes her as his lover, commanding all the other gang members not to ever lay a finger on her. Pulan fits into the role at the top of the gang nicely. Her take-no-shit attitude and Vikram at her side gave her the power over the group of men. Pulan was only 17 years old at this time. Pulan led her gang to ransack the village where her husband, that 45-year-old man, lived. They beat him and dragged him out into the street where she stabbed him in front of everyone else in the village. The gang left the town and Pulan left a note on her nearly dead husband. And the note said that this would happen to any other old man who married a young girl. (sighs) Snaps to her. Pulan and Vikram would also lead their gang around northern India, robbing trains and kidnapping wealthy landowners landowners for ransom. Rumors in the area spread that Pulan stole from the upper caste people and gave to the lower caste people. Sort of like Robin Hood. I was just going to say that. Is she Robin Hood now? However, this new leadership change didn't sit well with some of the gang members, especially not with two brothers named Lal Ram Singh and Sri Ram Singh. They were from a high caste called Thakur, I believe, or like a sect within a caste called Thakur, Mm -hmm. and didn't like the idea of these two low caste people being in charge. In August of 1980, Lal Ram and Sri Ram Singh attack Vikram, murdering him and once again kidnapping Pulan and any of the gang members who supported her. The brothers took them to the village of Bimai and reportedly gang raped and publicly humiliated her. They kept her in the village where other men who lived there also sexually assaulted Pulan. After three weeks of this torture, Pulan manages to escape with the help of a low-caste villager. She rallies a new gang of Malas, and for the next year and a half, they continue robbing high-caste people throughout North and Central India. That's actually insane. How is this not a movie? Like, this doesn't even seem like it happened in real life. Like, this is too crazy and dramatic to actually be real. It does, like, it does sound like a story, like a made-up story. Yeah. In February of 1981, she decides it is time to take revenge on Lal Ram Singh and Sri Ram Singh and all of the Bamai villagers who hurt her. They go to Bamai dressed as police officers and demand the villagers give them the brothers and their gang members. Pulan and her gang search the village for other members of the brothers' gang who harmed her and killed Vikram, but she can't find them. Angry, she orders her gang to march their captives into the street and line them up at gunpoint. She then tells her gang to open fire, and they massacre 22 men, most of which were just men from the Thakur caste in the village who had been preparing for wedding celebrations scheduled for that night. That's sad. Pulan and her gang then ransack and rob the village, escaping into the woods. After this massacre, which I'm sure shocked rural India, a massive police manhunt ensued, but nobody's able to find Pulan. People in the state of Uttar Pradesh begin calling Pulan the Bandit Queen, and with her rising fame, she begins to become a sort of legend. 
Poulan was glorified by the Indian media as a woman who took vengeance on her abusers and sought justice when no one else would give it to her. People also began to say that she was a personification of the goddess Durga, a Hindu goddess who is a protector of the universe, who battles evil forces of the world. For two years, the police could not capture Poulan or her gang. Because of this, the government decided to negotiate a surrender. Unbeknownst to them, Poulan was actually in poor health and could not stay could not stay hidden for much longer. She was getting tired of being on the run and most of her gang members and her protection were dead. In February of 1983, Poulan surrendered under the following conditions. She would not be served the death penalty. The maximum time served for her gang members would be eight years. She would get a plot of land in return and her family would be released for prison if they had been arrested while like on her behalf while the police were trying to find her and that her family would be escorted to her surrender ceremony. Over 10,000 people attended her surrender ceremony, many of them cheering her on in admiration. 300 police officers were waiting to arrest her and her gang members. Plan was charged with um, 45 crimes, most of which involved dacoity or kidnapping when she was only 20 years old. She was placed in jail where she would await her trial for 11 years. So she waited in jail for her trial for 11 That's years. That's insane. Mm-hmm. Also, how is she in poor health at 20? <laughs> I think it was just she was really tired, run down. She probably, maybe she didn't have enough food. Yeah, maybe. Sure. So in prison, she was forcibly sterilized with a hysterectomy. No. Why? Like, what? why is that necessary? Well, the doctor who performed this said, quote, we don't want Poulon Devi breeding more Poulon Devis, unquote. Uh, no, that's what we need. We need people to stand up. I mean, I'm not saying murdering people is a good thing to do, but also I'm not going to blame her for what she did, except for those people who are just celebrating the wedding. That's kind of sad. Yeah. So in 1994, after some public pressure, Poulan was released from prison without a trial and was exonerated for all her crimes. Wow. A couple years later, Poulan ran for parliament in the 11th Lok Sabha, so the 11th you know, seat of parliament, yeah. so the elections, essentially. She won a seat in parliament on her platform, which was based on helping the disadvantaged and the poor. Her victory was significant as she was one of few low-caste people and few women who was voted into parliament. On July 25th, 2001, Poulan had been re-elected to parliament. As she walked home one day to her house in Delhi after the morning session of Parliament, masked men came and attacked her, shooting her five times. Poulan was killed, having been hit in her head and her body. Some of my sources said she was hit five times with gunshots. Some of of my sources said she was hit ten times. Oh my goodness. Soon afterwards, a man named Sher Singh Rana turned himself in for her murder. He said that he killed her to take revenge on her murder of the upper caste men in the Bemi massacre nearly 15 or 20 years before. Since her surrender in 1983 and her death in 2001, there have been many stories written about the legendary bandit queen Poulan Devi. She wrote an autobiography which revealed much of the information about her early years and many legends were told about Poulan during this time. In 1994, the Bollywood film Bandit Queen was loosely based on her life. Wow. So there is a movie about cool. her. 
However, it was heavily criticized by Pulan herself because it got many facts incorrect, and she even fought to get the movie banned in India. Oh my god. That sucks. <laughs> so that is the story of the bandit queen Pulan Devi wow, from India. That was so cool. It's very sad because she was treated horribly by men her entire life. Mm-hmm. There's like a lot of gray area in that story, I think. Yeah. No, that was... I mean, all I can think of right now is well-behaved women rarely make history. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I mean, don't massacre a town of largely innocent people. Yeah. So... But, I mean, the beliefs that she had and, like, standing up for for people and for herself and, like, I can't can't Mm -hmm. imagine being sexually assaulted that... Much. Like multiple times by multiple different people, like yeah. the police, her husband when she was only eleven yeah. years old, the gang, the townspeople. Like, I, she she had so much strength and power in herself to mm-hmm. not give up after all that. Because, yeah, honestly, I don't know if I'd be able to <laughs> continue going on if that was my life. But yeah. I don't think so either. I'd lose my spirit. I read some some more stories about her, and they said that, well, some people largely believe that if Pulan had not existed, that there was a case where a woman was gang-raped on a bus in India, which caused huge, I think in like 20 Yeah, I remember that. Like I was going to talk about that. Yeah, and people said that if Pulan had not existed and had not led this gang getting justice against you know, men who um, victimized her, people might not have been so outraged about that incident. Yeah. And that's sad. Mm-hmm. That's really yeah. sad. Um, I mean, I don't know m- much about the situation in India, um, but I do know that women's rights are very minute um, there when it comes to, like, sexual assault and stuff. Like, mm-hmm. I think that if I can remember correctly, I think that woman on the bus was, like, raped with, like, a broken broomstick and stuff. Like, they just oh. took turns and then, like, they just, like, completely assaulted her. And th- there there was other people on the bus. Like, it was, like, taking a bus and then, like, 20... And no one did anything. No one did anything. Like, it's just insane how how that kind of stuff gets handled. Sexual assault is... Like, it really just needs to remove sex from it because it's nothing sexual. It's assault. You're taking advantage of someone. You're trying to destroy their confidence and their well-being and their respect for themselves. And it's, yeah, it's demeaning someone in a way more than just assault and beating someone up does. It's like, yeah, I can't really say much. I just, it's horrible. Yeah, it's, um... It's hard. You lose a lot of um, confidence in yourself, and you put a lot of blame on yourself for it. Mm -hmm. And people put the blame on you. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's not not a good time. (laughs) Yeah, it's like people saying, teaching girls all these different ways of protecting themselves, and it's like, well, why don't you just teach the like your sons not to attack women? Yeah, there's. There's um, 
a video that I shared on my Facebook a while ago, and every time it, like, pops up in my memories, like, I end up rewatching it, and I just cry the entire time I watch it. <laughs> um, I think it was, um, it was some, like, Nordic, maybe it was Iceland, um, like, PSA video, and it was, like, dear dad, like, you protected me, like, when I was in mom's belly, not letting her eat sushi, and, like, you, like, raised me to, like, be, like, strong and, like, independent, but, like, you need to look at, like, your friends and, like, their behaviors, because Mm -hmm. when you let your friends make jokes about assaulting women or raping, raping women or being misogynistic or, um, you, you let those things happen. You're, you're not, you're not looking after me. You're not keeping me safe. Like you're trying to. So I think it's, it's a huge responsibility for men to, to look at themselves and and their friends and, um, the people that they surround themselves with because, you know, women aren't there in the locker room talk to, to, to tell you that that's inappropriate and, and incorrect. And if you don't change the behavior, then nothing's, nothing's going to change. It's not going to get better. Mm-hmm. It can be up to the victims to change the behavior of the perpetrators. Yeah, exactly. It has to be done by someone who the perpetrators think is their equal. Yeah. We can yell until our, our faces are red and blue, but if you don't think that women are of equal status to you, then you're not going to listen to anything that we say. <laughs> yeah. So moral of the story is... Moral of the story is women are strong, independent beings, and you don't want to mess with us. And also speak to your friends about their misogynistic and lack of respect for women mm-hmm. and make the change. It's up to you. Thank you. <laughs> and good night. Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so on to happier things. Mm-hmm. Where's Harry Styles, Tegan? He's in my room. <laughs> <laughs> Megan and I did our Christmas exchange last night and she printed off and edited some of those lovely photos from the Vogue magazine um, shoot that we talked about previously. And so now I have to go get some picture frames so I can hang that up because mm-hmm. we love him. Yes, I, you know, worked my Photoshop magic and made beautiful art pieces of beautiful Harry Styles. Oh, yeah. He is the art. I didn't do anything. He's already a piece of art. Yeah. Uh, where's Where's Uncle Rick? Any updates? Oh my God, <laughs> Uncle Rick! I don't know. Um, also, when I was speaking to my parents, I feel like I've been speaking to my parents a lot recently. But um, my parents watched um, the Percy Jackson movie, and then literally the next day listened to the episode where we were talking about um, Percy Jackson. How horrible it is! Yeah. So I thought that was kind of funny. Funny how those things work out. Yeah. So I made a TikTok account. Yeah. I have stayed off of TikTok for, like, I don't know, this entire, like, well, until 
this week. Yeah. But I have quickly found Witch Talk. I love Witch Talk. This is what I'm telling you, Megan. You are missing out on so many things. Witch Talk is amazing. I literally think that, like, I, I, I'm not even kidding. I'm going to a metaphysical store next week. Um, oh my goodness. We can, you know, I can pick some stuff up for you if you want. I've decided that I'm going to start doing shadow work, um, which is like not really that witchy, but it's more of a form of therapy. Um, but it's called shadow work. So I feel like a witch. Yeah. I really don't like messing with that kind of stuff. I don't like dabbling in the occult because you know i don't necessarily believe in ghosts i don't necessarily believe in demons but i'm not going to aggravate them and welcome them into my life with a ouija board yeah no no okay so like to me like my witch talk is like or like i guess to me like my version of like what witchcraft is is like using the like the earth and like the like what the earth offers you like it's like basically just being like a hippie like enjoy like yeah like i don't believe in ghosts and i don't believe in demons and angels and all that kind of stuff um shadow work is basically looking at like the dark self you're like the self of you that you have like repressed and um because people have told you that it's wrong or um that like you've told yourself it shouldn't be something of you and it's like working on like becoming okay with the parts of you that you don't like Mm -hmm. that's nice yeah yeah i think a lot of it is just kind of like spirituality slash therapy yeah yeah I i thought i was into astrology until i happened upon witch talk and people are like the conjunction of the moon and saturn and earth on the 21st of december will allow you to be creative and da 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 and like all these different things i'm like okay i just know i am an aquarius sun sign i am an aquarius (laughs) moon sign and i'm a scorpio rising okay so have you that's all i know not been i know you i've been sending you so many conjunction videos on tiktok i don't know if you've watched any of them they all go over my head I don't understand it. I know that on Monday, December 21st, so like two days ago, I guess, I guess, but, but I guess you could still hang on to that energy and do it this week. Like it is the prime time to start something new and then be successful at it. So the video, I I think the video you sent me, or maybe I just watched it by myself. It was like, if you're going to start a YouTube channel or like start a new project or something do it on december 21st because it is like prime time well you that witchy energy and planetary energy to like make it successful yeah what you need to do is you need to manifest it so you need to Mm. think about it what you want but then you also have to think about about how it's going to make you feel like when you've achieved that thing what is the energy and the feeling that you're going to have that's the only way manifestation works is you have to think about the feel like you can't just be like oh like i i um want so and so to text me or message me you have to think about the feeling that you get when like they message you or like you know when you create your youtube channel or whatever like the feeling that it's going to give you when like you have like a million subscribers or whatever mm-hmm. did 
you send me this one, but I saw a video where she was talking about it was like in her psych class. This girl was saying that her professor gave her like a hack to manifestation and it works literally every time. You have to like, it's basically like making like smart goals. Yeah. So you have to write it down, write when you're going to attain the goal, write how it's going to make you feel. So she wrote down like, um, I am a successful and a happy veterinarian at age 29 or whatever. Yeah. Like with my own clinic. And then she was like, and it came true. Yeah. <laughs> but she like, yeah. Well, so, and she said it's not like witchy manifestation like crystal energy stuff it's just like psychologically you it motivates you to make that happen because you see it down on paper and you write it down and you start to believe it's attainable and like yeah yeah that I think I think we're kind of like on the same page because like I don't think that like the universe is going to like change things for me if I ask for it but I think that like because like with like goals and stuff you're more likely to do them if you express it to somebody else or you know if you write it down so like the manifestation that you're doing is really just a way of like motivating yourself to achieve Mm -hmm. those things it's a way of like using your old brain or whatever to like realize like what you need to do to get to where you want to go so i'm really excited i'm gonna go buy some palo santo maybe some um incense some sage yeah um maybe i'll get some more crystals because i like them they're pretty Mm-hmm. My salt. Lamp. I have crystals. I put them on my windowsill, but just because they're pretty, not because they catch any energy. <laughs> I kind of like. I'm not saying that they do, but I'm not saying that they don't. Like I think, like for me, and like, like my beliefs and everything. Like I feel like I'm probably more on like the spiritual side, but I think that like everything has energy, and when you die, your energy goes back into the universe and can go into things because your body like basically will form dirt or rocks or whatever so like your salt lamps like those are scientifically proven that they actually they release like negative ions yeah. or something. so I think there's stuff like that like I don't think I don't know like I think like certain crystals are good to have in your space because they create a good environment i don't know where i'm at with these things right now i just it really intrigues me and i want to learn more about it so i don't really don't know what i'm talking about but i think that they're like the science like if there's science that backs it then i will believe it that's my stance science nice science is science good so you're not an (laughs) anti-vaxxer no I saw this TikTok and it was like, if you're still using an Urban Decay palette from 2010, you don't need to worry about what's in the COVID vaccine. That's so funny. (laughs) You know, it's like, if have you eaten a slice of American cheese before or a hot dog? You don't need to worry about what's in the vaccine. I think I sent you a TikTok the other day, maybe last night too, where it was like, um, so Pfizer just released what's in the vaccine, and then like she was going through like all of the things and she was like and there's six grams of sucrose i'm keto that's not gonna work for me (laughs) yeah 
<laughs> I was thinking that one too. Yeah. That's funny. Also, keto is absolutely insane. There's yeah. no way that you're going to tell me that putting a whole bunch of ground beef and butter in a pan and frying it up so you just get this big ball of grease and meat is better than eating a piece of bread. I just, I can't believe that. You're not giving the body the nutrients that it needs and you're only losing the weight because you're not looking after your body properly. And as soon as you stop doing a keto diet, you're going to put it all back on because it's normal body mass that you're supposed to have. My roommate, Alicia, hello, Alicia, if you're listening, back in university, she did keto for a while and I think she did lose some weight. I honestly can't speak for her. Um, but she like cheated on it. Like not necessarily cheated, but like she would eat berries. So she would have some sugar, which I think is much better than just limiting yourself to like meat and vegetables. Yeah. Like you need, uh, sugars turn into carbohydrates and carbohydrates are what you need to survive. Bread is carbohydrates. Pasta Mm -hmm. is carbohydrates. You know, Europeans are really thin. Like, Dutch people are thin and beautiful. Yeah. And they eat mainly just bread and cheese. Yeah. So it's really not carbs that are bad for you at all. It's really just processed food. food. Yeah. Like, the processed food we have in North America. And, like, you really can't... You can't go a single day without having some sort of processed food. I feel like as hard as you try because just everything here is processed. Yeah. No, and, like, also watching other TikToks, like, this girl was, like... You know, I lived in the U.S. my entire life and I've had such bad acne. And then as soon as I moved to England, my acne went away mm-hmm. because of what's in our foods. I, yeah. I'm trying to eat really clean. Like I my goal when I'm shopping is that I stick to the perimeter of the grocery store. You don't go in the aisles. You need things that are only in the refrigerated sections because those don't have as much processed Interesting. things in them. That's smart. Yeah. You just stick to the refrigerated and fresh sections. If it's not the frozen, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, like with the, like frozen fruits and berries, and like that's yeah. It's it's always good to have something frozen in the freezer, just when you're in a pinch as well. You just heat it up and eat it. But like when I lived in the Netherlands, I I lost weight because I was just eating so much cleaner and i was literally eating like brie cheese and crackers for every meal because it was so good oh my god and bread i want i saw this I, i'm just really on i spent a lot of time on tiktok recently um but this woman was making baked brie with um garlic um oil or like garlic mm. butter like so she was like basically making it into like a fondue with crackers kind of thing I didn't know that you could buy a brie baker. I need a brie breaker. I want to bake brie all the time now. And that's all I'll I think, eat. I think we have one. I think a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago, really, really, I got like brie and just put big cloves of garlic in there Ugh. and baked it. It was so good. So good. Baked garlic that just like disintegrates into your mouth. Mm-hmm. I went to a restaurant in White Rock a couple weeks ago, or maybe a couple months ago. I don't know. Time isn't real to me anymore. But Time isn't linear yeah. anymore. <laughs> um, 
yeah, we had, um, like this baked brie in a phyllo pastry and then it had like roasted garlic on the side and you just like it, like the garlic was spreadable. Like it was like, ugh. I think about it. So good. I dream about it Mike's, a lot. Mike's mom makes the best garlic butter. Oh, it's so good. I think she puts like tequila or rum in it as oh. well. Like I think there's some sort of alcohol, maybe sherry, but it is so good. Oh, Shout I out to eat. Karen. <laughs> yeah, I know. Karen, if you're listening, your garlic butter is really good. She's most mm, definitely so listening. Okay. Tegan, are you ready for your country i am you are going to indonesia i do not know many murder cases out that way so and where do you want to know where i'm going megan going i am going to hungary Ooh, that'll be fun Mm -hmm. all right so that's it for this week follow us on instagram at destination murder pod send us an email please we really want to like you know instead of us like mansplaining to you where you live why don't you send us an email death.murder at gmail.com with a little blurb about your country or your town and your country or you know just something crazy that happened in your town that you think that we have to know about Mm -hmm. we want to get you involved we want we want our little community to be happy together Hold my hand through the podcast. We're holding hands through the screen right now. Mm Mm-hmm. Hi. I'm glad to be on this journey with you. (laughs) We're so weird. Yeah. Anyways, see you next week. Adios. I hope to be in your ear holes next week. We can't wait. Have a happy, happy holiday. Yeah. Um, Meet in the meantime. Send us an email. Tell us what you got for Christmas. Yeah. Did you get anything for Christmas? Um, I don't know. What happened on Let the Great Conjunction? Did you have like some like sh- weird shift of energy? Like what's yeah, going on? If anything significant in your life happened on December 21st, let us yeah. know. Keep on the lookout for that. Yeah, please do. All okay, right. bye. Bye. Merry Christmas Eve, Eve. Bye. bye. And if you don't celebrate Christmas. Happy holidays. Uh, Happy holidays, and then we'll happy, s- happy happy New Year. happy statutory days off. Enjoy your vacation time. It's like a mm-hmm. four day weekend this week. Enjoy it. Celebrate. Relax. Take a nap. Okay. Eat Goodbye. So much food, you just fall asleep into a food coma. Yeah. Do it. I dare you. No, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Bye. Good night. <laughs> good morning, good night, good evening. Sweet dreams. Sweet dreams. I hope you have a good sleep. <laughs> okay, goodbye. <laughs>